The title of today's message is, When You're Down. You know, one of the great phenomena in life is what happens when a person hits rock bottom. You know, Eric Clapton wrote a song called, Nobody Knows Nobody Knows You When You're Down and Out, right? I don't know if anybody's heard that song. It's on his Unplugged album. Nobody Knows You When You're Down and Out. In that Bible app uh, notes thing, I put the lyrics to that song so you can follow along with that if you're interested. But in this song, what, what Eric Clapton does is he tells this story of a time in his life when uh, the bottom fell out and he hit rock bottom. Up until that point, you know, he had been rich and famous. He had been successful. He had money. And of course, along with that money and fame and success came a lot of friends he was surrounded by people all the time. Everybody wanted to be his friend. But when the bottom fell out of his life, when he hit hard times and ran out of money, when he hit rock bottom, suddenly his friends were nowhere to be found and he had nowhere to go. You know, when you're down, sometimes uh, it's surprising the way that people react, isn't it? I remember going through uh, some very difficult periods in my life. One in particular is very, you know, prolonged, difficult period and, um, and being surprised by the fact that people who I thought were really good friends of mine, uh, they were nowhere to be found when I really needed the support. And on the other side, though, there were other people who I would have never expected, who I didn't even think of, and they surprised me, and they came around with their love and support in a major way, in such a way that I'll never forget it. You know, there are these moments in life which have a way of bringing out what's going on inside of a person. Right? There's moments that in which character is revealed. But those times when you're down, you know, they can also be incredibly formative times in your life. You often hear people talk about the time in their life when they hit rock bottom and how it was a major turning point in their life. For some people, it takes hitting rock bottom for them to finally turn to God or finally consider the, the fact of eternity or the, to decide to really become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now here in 2 Samuel chapter 16, where we pick up our study of the life of David, we pick up the story at a time when David's life has hit rock bottom. His own son, Absalom, has betrayed him and has led a rebellion against him and declared himself to be king. And the people of Israel have followed after Absalom. A lot of David's friends have turned their backs on him and betrayed him. Really, the bottom has fallen out. David is hitting rock bottom. And, and if that weren't bad enough that his son has led this coup against him, now his son Absalom is on his way to Jerusalem as we speak to kill David and to take his throne. And so that's where we pick up our story here in 2 Samuel chapter 16. David is fleeing Jerusalem. We read in verse 1, When David had passed a little beyond the summit... I want to stop there and, and explain what that means. Now, when David heard that his son Absalom was leading this political coup to oust him, right? David was faced with an immediate question. And the question was, what is he going to do? Is he going to stay in Jerusalem and defend his throne? Which would inevitably cause Jerusalem to become a battleground. It would, it would result in loss of life. Uh, or will he step aside? And just let Absalom march right in and take the kingdom from him. Now we know that what David decided to do was David decided to leave. And the reason David left and just said, fine, I'm just going to leave Jerusalem and let this other guy come in and, and take the throne. The reason he decided to leave was, was not only because he wanted to spare Jerusalem. That was part of it. He wanted to spare Jerusalem, the city that he loves. He wanted to spare it from becoming a battleground. But there was another reason. 
maybe a more significant reason, and that was that David truly wanted to be fully yielded to the will of God, not only for his life, but for the life of the nation. And he was willing to let go of his throne, and he was willing to entrust his job, his career, his calling, his entire life into God's hands. You see, David had been around, you know, he, he's He's been around for a while. He's an older man now. And as a young man, David had watched firsthand. He had seen how King Saul, who was king before him, had stubbornly clung to power. Stubbornly clung to the throne, even though God had rejected him as king. And David watched for years as Saul resisted the will of God. And Saul refused to give up the throne and tried to hold on to it tooth and nail. And David saw how this resulted in Saul's ruin and bankruptcy and pain and suffering for the nation. Everybody suffered because of it. And you can only imagine how, as a young man, David would have said to himself, I'm never going to be like that. How many of you remember that? Being a young person in your teens, in your 20s, and looking around at the ways that people around you lived, the way that they lived their lives, the decisions that they made, and you looked at them and you said in yourself, I'm never going to be like that. That's never going to be me. I remember thinking like that, for sure. I think those are some of the most formative decisions that we make when as young people we look around and we say, I'm not going to be like that. You know, David made that kind of decision about Saul. He looked at Saul as a young man and he said, you know what, I'm never going to be like that. If someday I'm king and I'm in a similar situation, I'm not going to stubbornly cling to the throne. You know, Saul had started out so well. Do you remember that? Saul started out great, but David had watched as Saul lost his soul because he wasn't willing to let go of the throne. In, in his attempts to stay on the throne, he had seen how the people of Israel had suffered because Saul refused to let go of the throne. And David had said in his heart, I'm never going to be like that. If one day when I'm king, God wants to remove me or replace me, I'm not going to fight against God. I'm not going to do what Saul did. I'm going to just step aside in that case. and I'm going to say, Lord, let your will be done. I'm not going to let the nation suffer. Uh, I'm not going to get in the way of what God wants to do. I would be willing to let go of the throne. And that is just what David has done, by the way. And, and it's particularly incredible where David went after he left Jerusalem. Last week we read that David leaves Jerusalem. Of course, Jerusalem sits on a hill. And it says that David passed down the hill that Jerusalem sits on into the Kidron Valley and crossed the brook Kidron and headed up the other mountain, which is opposite the mountain where Jerusalem sits, which is called the Mount of Olives. You've probably heard about it before. And so he goes up the Mount of Olives, and we, we wonder why. Why is he taking this route? Why wouldn't he follow the river down towards the Dead Sea? see well there's a good reason it's because on top of the mount of olives we read in chapter 15 there was the place where people went to worship God isn't that incredible he goes in his hour of greatest trouble and great distress hitting rock bottom where does David go he goes to the place of worship and chapter 16 begins with this phrase, after David had passed the summit. You see, the summit, that was the place of worship of God. And so what's going to happen in this chapter is, as after David has now worshipped, now he continues on his journey, fleeing Jerusalem. And as he goes on his way, we're going to see that he meets a series of people. And, and uh, here are the people he meets, four different people. He meets opportunists, he meets critics, 
He meets enemies and he meets friends. I'll, I'll repeat that later. He meets these four people, these kind of people. When David comes to this point of hitting rock bottom, all these people start coming out of the woodwork, right? Start revealing their character. Some as opportunists, some as critics, some as enemies, and others as friends. And it's worth considering each of these people, as well as David's reactions to these people, because all of us will come in contact with these four kinds of people at different times in our lives, and all of us have the propensity to be these people as well. So it's important to take note of them. The first person that David meets along the way is the opportunist. We read this, when David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And he, the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? And Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. You know, we've actually met this guy, Ziba, before. Uh, back in chapter 9, we met Ziba for the first time because Ziba is the servant of Mephibosheth. And if you remember, Mephibosheth is the grandson of King Saul, the former king of Israel. And so the custom of that day, you know, what we learned in chapter 9, the custom of that day was that if a new king came into power, they would go and they would kill all the living descendants of the previous king so that there would be no challenge to their throne. But David, rather than killing Mephibosheth, he sought him out. And David brought him into his own home and he had him live with him. He ate with him. He even adopted him as his own son. And it was just an incredible act of kindness that David showed to Mephibosheth. So here's Ziba. He's the servant of Mephibosheth. And he comes out to meet David at this time when David is fleeing Jerusalem. And he brings David this incredible gift of provisions. Donkeys to, to ride on, tons of food to eat, and, and things to drink. You know, this is really a very thoughtful gesture on the part of, of Ziba towards David. And here David is on the run. He doesn't know when, where his next meal is going to come from. He's out in the wilderness. And so this man brings him food to eat, donkeys to ride on. This is really uh, a huge blessing. You know, you can imagine David saying, thank you, Lord, for Ziba. And the king said, where is your master's son? Meaning, where is Mephibosheth? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, my king. Here's what's going on. David says to Ziba, Hey, by the way, uh, you're here. Where's Mephibosheth? Ziba says, Oh, Mephibosheth. Well, let me tell you, David. He's double-crossed you. He's stabbing you in the back. He's back in Jerusalem hoping that this crisis here with, with this other guy is going to give him the opportunity to step in and take his place as king since he has a claim to the throne as the, son, as the grandson of Saul. He's double-crossed you, David. He's stabbed you in the back. Ziba's ratting out Mephibosheth. That's why he's come. Ziba's saying, David, you know all the kindness, all the generosity that you showed to Mephibosheth? Now look what he's doing to you. He stabbed you in the back the first chance he got. Now try to put yourself in David's shoes, right? His son, many of his close friends have betrayed him. The nation has turned against him. And here comes Ziba with this incredible gift. And Ziba tells David that Mephibosheth has betrayed him. Well, that's the last thing that David needs right now, isn't it? 
and more people turning their backs on him and, and betraying him. And, and especially Mephibosheth, after all David's done for him. David brought him into his house. He poured out his heart for him. And this is what he gets in return. Mephibosheth stabs him in the back. And so David says in verse 4, he says, You know what, Ziba? Everything that belonged to Mephibosheth, I'm giving it to you. Taking away everything Mephibosheth has, that's what he deserves. He's a traitor. He's turned his back on me. So David is rewarding Ziba's loyalty and punishing Mephibosheth's disloyalty. The only problem is Ziba's lying. Do you know that? We're going to find that out for sure in chapter 19. That everything that Ziba says about Mephibosheth is not true at all. Not at all. Not one bit of it. Mephibosheth hasn't betrayed David. In fact, Mephibosheth is back in Jerusalem. He's putting his life on the line because of his loyalty to David. So why would Ziba say something like this? Well, it's obvious. Ziba is an opportunist. Ziba is an example of someone who wickedly uses a crisis for their own benefit. You know, when Ziba heard about David's troubles, his first thought was, how can I benefit from his troubles? How can I use this situation to my advantage? How can I score something out of this? And he gives all these gifts to David just as a way of buttering him up. You know, there will always, there will always be people like Ziba, people who are looking to capitalize on other people's troubles. Like vultures, they're, they're circling and waiting for someone to fall so that they can swoop in and capitalize on it. You know, you get excited when somebody else fails because it makes you look better. It gives you an opportunity to jump in and step in and take something. But if you look at Jesus, you know what you see? You don't see that at all. Here's what you see with Jesus. The gospel message is that all of us have fallen. All of us have fallen. In our darkest moment, in our weakest moment, Jesus came to us. Not to capitalize on the situation for his own advantage, but to sacrifice himself for us so that we who are fallen might be raised up. He came into our darkness to bring light and life. And that is what we are called to in Jesus Christ as well. We are called to embody and live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. To love people the same way that God has loved us. God will deal with the Zebas of this world. Our calling is to not act like Zeba, but to act like Jesus Christ. So the next person that David meets along the way in, in the next section here is a man named Shimei. And Shimei is the critic. We read in verse 5. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And he came he, and he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and at all the people uh, and all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, evil is on you for you are a man of blood. Shimei was a distant relative of the former king, Saul. And when Shimei heard that David was fleeing Jerusalem, he went out to meet him along the way for the very purpose of he wants to just kick him while he's down, right? He, just wants, he sees David's down, he just wants to kick him a couple times. He throws stones at him, he insults him. He's trying to destroy any strand or shred of dignity or confidence that David might have left. And he criticizes David. He tells him, you're worthless. And he says, you deserve what's happening to you right now. You know, it's true that any time 
anyone tries to do anything of any significance, there will always be people like Shimei, critics who are eager to jump in and point out weaknesses. They're ready to jump in and criticize and say something negative. They're ready to tear down rather than to build up. It's just kind of a fact of leadership. If you aspire to any form of leadership, criticism just kind of comes with the territory. It's almost like if you can't handle it, then you should never aspire to any degree of, of, uh, of leadership. You know, Theodore Roosevelt, as president of the United States, you can imagine that he faced his share of criticism. And he gave a, a very famous speech at the Sorbonne in Paris. And, and here's part of that speech. It's well known. Some of you may have heard it. But it's called, a, what is it called? The, the Man in the Arena. Okay, and here's how it goes. He said, it is not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, but there is no effort without error and shortcoming but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. You know, I think that Roosevelt was right. It doesn't take courage to criticize. It doesn't require any uh, genius or any nobility to criticize people or tear them down. Any coward can throw stones and criticize like Shimei. And it's interesting that Shimei really, he's had this grievance against David for so long, but now he only comes out, he's only willing to air it at the point when David is down. It doesn't take genius, it doesn't take nobility to criticize other people. That's why the Bible instructs us as Christians, it says this in Philippians 4, it says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, we're encouraged to encourage one another and build each other up. You know, there are some people out there who think that having a critical spirit is a spiritual gift. Well, let me tell you what, it is not a gift of the spirit and it is not something that you should aspire to. Now, that's not to say that there should never be dialogue or about areas where there's room for improvement, but there's a proper way about going about it. It can be done in a way that is loving, in a way that builds up rather than tears down. You know, it's been said that uh, true friends don't stab you in the back. True friends stab you in the front, right? I think that's true as well. But what is uh, particularly noteworthy here is not necessarily just Shimei's criticism of David, but what's particularly noteworthy is how David responds to that criticism. And let's read that in verse 9. We read, Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. 
It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and the Lord will repay me for the good or with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed him as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust and the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan and there he refreshed himself. You know, one of David's mighty men, Abishai, he says, David, what do you want me to do? You want me to cut that guy's head off? You want me to chop him down? And, you know, I don't think that was hyperbole. I think that he was seriously going to do that. He was ready to take this guy down. And David says, no, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to strike back. I don't want you to cut him down. And notice this. David does three things here which are really important for you and I to also consider at those times when we face criticism. How do we cope with criticism? How did David do it? Number one, David looked up. David looked up to God and he, he was enabled to receive criticism with humility. He was able to receive criticism with humility because he looked up. David said to Abishai and the people who were with him, he says, let him speak. You know why? Because maybe there's something that God wants to say to us even through this cursing critic. You know, David had come to see the hand of God in everything. And so he knew that if God wanted to shut Shimei's mouth, that God could do that. But if God was allowing Shimei to speak to him this way, well, then maybe there's a reason. And David was willing to humbly receive this criticism. And that's incredible, I think, uh, because David was willing to consider that God might have something to say to him even through a cursing critic. Even though everything Shimei is doing is wrong, it's not right, yet David is willing to say, well, maybe there's something valid in what he's saying. Even though he's wrong, maybe there's something he's got to say that's right. You know, sometimes I think that we are so concerned with defending ourselves that we do not honestly consider what might actually be valid criticism that God has allowed to surface. You know, God might even use a person like Shimei, whose actions, whose attitude are completely wrong, to say something that needs to be heard. So, so like David, when you're criticized, you need to look up to God and receive criticism with humility. I read this quote from one author this week. He said this, I am concerned that people are more willing to be destroyed by praise than to be saved by criticism. You know, it's important when you face criticism to look up to God and humbly consider that if there is something actually valid in that criticism that the Lord has allowed to surface. Secondly, David looked around and he kept things in perspective. That was the other thing that helped him cope with criticism. He looked around and he kept things in perspective. He looked at Shimei cursing him, throwing dirt in the air, and he almost laughs to himself, right? And he says, look, guys, let's keep some things in perspective, right? My son is trying to kill me. And there's some crazy guy here throwing dirt in the air and yelling at me. You know, who cares, right? Like, big deal. I've got, that's small potatoes. We've got bigger fish to fry. I'm not going to let that get me all bent out of shape. i got to keep some stuff in perspective. When you face criticism, it's important to do what David did, to keep things in perspective, and not let any one person's criticism destroy you. Thirdly, David looked ahead. That was the next thing he did. He looked ahead and he trusted God that God was going to deal with Shimei and that God could even bring something good, even a blessing, out of this bad situation. So we've seen, as David's gone on the way, he's seen now, he's met the opportunist. Now he's also seen the critic come out of the woodwork. The next person who comes out of the woodwork at this time when David has hit rock bottom 
is the enemy. His name is Ahithophel. Verse 15, we read this. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. Let's skip down to verse 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel, what shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Ahithophel used to be one of David's most trusted advisors and counselors. But Ahithophel was one of the first people who went and joined Absalom in this rebellion. And now Ahithophel is working for Absalom, helping him strategize how to destroy David. Now when David... Uh, had left his palace there in Jerusalem. We read in the previous chapter that David left behind 10 concubines. Now concubines were basically second-class wives. In fact, in some languages that is exactly like in Hungarian, which uh, we speak, you know, that is the word for concubine. It literally is second-class wife. So that, you know, is a legal relationship. It was probably not, you know, a good one. We've talked about David's problems with taking on all these wives. But David left these women in charge of his palace because he probably assumed that they would be safe. I mean, why would Absalom do anything to them? They, this, his, Absalom's qualm is not with these women, it's with David. And so David probably figured they're not going to hurt these women, they'll be safe here. And so Absalom comes into Jerusalem, he enters the king's palace to take the throne, and here are these ten women. And Ahithophel, remember, used to be David's number one counselor, now working for Absalom. Ahithophel says to Absalom, here's what you should do. You know what you should do? You ought to, you ought to do this if you really want to stick it to your father. He goes, you should pitch a tent on the roof of the palace, and you should go into that tent and violate each of these women out in the open for everybody to see. And so that's what Absalom does. Now think about that. That is something so vile, so offensive, so immoral, so treacherous. And the intention of it is to hurt David, to just further twist the knife in his heart. What kind of wicked person would devise such a thing like this? Ahithophel, that's who. Ahithophel. Now remember for years, probably for decades, Ahithophel worked for David. He gave him counsel, but now he's scheming with Absalom about how to take David down, how to hurt him, how to destroy him. Now what would cause Ahithophel to turn on David like this and treat his longtime friend as an enemy? Well, there is one reason. You see, Ahithophel had a son. His son's name was Eliam, and Eliam had a daughter. You know what her name was? Bathsheba. You see this, Ahithophel is the grandfather of Bathsheba. Now try to imagine the outrage that Ahithophel must have felt when David abused his kingly authority and took advantage of his granddaughter while her husband was away at war fighting for the nation. And if that weren't bad enough, David then murdered Bathsheba, his granddaughter's husband, in order to cover up what he had done. And Ahithophel, you can imagine, he must have felt just outraged. But the thing is, what are you going to do? 
I mean, David's the king. What are you going to do? Not to mention that, Ahithophel works for him. That's his boss. So what's Ahithophel to do? He just, so what he does is he just bottles up that hurt and that anger towards David and he stores it deep down inside where it stews and festers and grows over the years. And now years have passed since those regrettable events with Bathsheba, but Ahithophel has not forgotten. And the first chance he gets, the first rebellion that comes along, the first coup that comes along to overthrow David, Ahithophel is the first person to volunteer. Yeah, I'm with you. And it's not because Absalom's a great leader. It's because Ahithophel has been waiting for his chance to get back at David, to, to get him for what David done to his granddaughter. And so here's Ahithophel, and, and he's an excellent strategist. And his one goal is to destroy David, and he's just giving this wicked counsel. And we read this in verse uh, 1 of chapter 17. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. And I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged, and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. And I will strike down only the king. And I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Ithophel says, you know what, Absalom, we've got David just where you want him. And you know, you can turn this into a win, David. It doesn't have to become a civil war. We just go in with a stealth group, a smaller group of troops, 12,000 elite men. And he says, we go in there and we'll just assassinate David. He says, we've got to do it tonight. And Ithophel says, but I want to be the guy who kills him with my own hands. You see, that Ahithophel is an old guy, right? He's in his 70s, 80s probably, but he wants to join this group of soldiers. They're going to pursue David through the wilderness of Judea, down to the Jordan River. They're going to go and get him. Why? Ahithophel says, I don't care how old I am. I want to be the one who puts the knife in David's heart. Do you get that sense of how passionately Ahithophel just hates David? But check out what happens in verse, um, verse 5, verse 4. Yeah, verse 5. Absalom said, call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. So Ahithophel gives this counsel, which if you think about it, it's actually very good counsel. But Absalom says, okay, well, let's get a second opinion. And he calls in this guy named Hushai the archite. Now, who is Hushai the archite? Now, if you turn with me real quickly to the end of chapter 15, this is the part that we left out last week. Here's what happened at the end of chapter 15. Uh, David, as he's leaving Jerusalem, this guy, this friend of his named Hushai the Archite, comes out and meets him and says, David, I want to help you. And, and so David says, you know what? If you really want to help me, here's what you can do. I need you to do a little bit of espionage, right? I need you to go undercover, infiltrate the rebellion, make them think that you're joining their side. And then once you're on the inside, you know, help me from the inside. Give them bad advice, you know, you be my mole who tells me what's going on. And so that's what Hushai's done. So here he is, he's in the court now of Absalom. And they say, hey, well, well what does Hushai the, the archive have to say, right? And here's what he says. Um, verse 6, when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Hushai said to Absalom, the time, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are like mighty men. They're enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. 
So he, he gives this advice in the next couple verses, and his plan is basically this. He says, you don't even know, man. Your father is a military mastermind. He's a man of war, and you think he's just going to be hanging out? You think that he's letting you have the throne? No, you know what David's out doing? He's out getting an army. And if you want to fight David, you better get a big army. We need a full-on civil war, and you need to lead the troops, Absalom. And this is the advice that he gives him. And in verse 14, we read that all the people said, yeah, we'll go with the council of Hushai rather than the council of Ahithophel, right? Which is pretty incredible if you think about it because the council that Ahithophel gave was actually better counsel. And so we can't help but see the hand of God in this because Ahithophel's counsel was the good counsel, but yet God directs the hearts of the people to say, yeah, I guess we'll go with what uh, Hushai the uh, Archite said. Now skip down with me to verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off to his own city. And he set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died, and he was buried in the tomb of his father. Ahithophel was so intent on bringing David down, but now look at this. Here's how the story ends. Ahithophel is the one who dies and not David. Ahithophel dies, and David doesn't. Ahithophel was the one who's angry. He's the one who's angry about what David did so many years ago. And his anger was absolutely justified, wasn't it? I mean, David did a terrible thing. But Ahithophel held on to that anger. He held on to that bitterness towards David until it absolutely destroyed him. You know, it has been said that harboring bitterness is like swallowing a bottle of poison and expecting the other person to die. The irony is... David wasn't even carrying this burden anymore. And for all these years, Ahithophel has been tortured daily, eaten alive by the acid of anger and bitterness towards David. And at the same time, David is totally free because David repented. David turned back to the Lord. He's done everything he could to make right the wrongs that he had done, that he had committed against Bathsheba. But Ahithophel refused to let it go. And look who suffers as a result. It's not David who suffers, it's Ahithophel who suffers. And that is how bitterness always works, you know that? It's like trying to punish somebody by locking yourself in a prison. And most of the time the other person doesn't even know that you're in prison, right? It's just, you're the one who suffers if you hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness. And the message of the gospel you need to know this. The message of the gospel is that on the cross of Calvary, Jesus took all the sin of humanity upon himself. God became a man. That's how serious sin is, that it required God to die. He bore our griefs. He bore our burdens. Not only the sins that we have committed, those burdens that we carry, that we regret, but he bore the sins of others against you. You know that? The sins that other people have committed against you. He bore them. All of it was placed upon him. And justice was carried out for those sins in full force in Jesus Christ on the cross. And because of that, you don't have to bear the burden of those sins which have been committed against you any longer. The gospel tells us that we are free from the burden of our own sin and from the burden of those sins which have been committed against us. Those sins were placed upon him so that you don't have to bear that burden any longer. Those sins destroyed him so that you don't have to be destroyed by them. We can actually forgive those who have sinned against us because we know that their sins have been dealt with by God in Christ on the cross. 
You know, to forgive someone is not to say, it doesn't matter. That's not what it means to forgive. It, to forgive is to say, I believe and I accept that God has dealt with your sin. And if Jesus says that it is finished, then I don't need to carry that burden any longer. The final group that we meet coming out of the woodwork here at this time when David is at rock bottom are the friends. We've already talked about Hushai the archite, but now we meet a few others in these last few verses, starting in verse 24. Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all his men, with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Now Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. You see they're encamping for battle. That's what's going to happen next. When David came to Mahaniah, Shobi the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai the Gileadite from uh, Rogelim, brought beds, or basins and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep and cheese for the herd, uh, from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. You know, oftentimes it's when you're down and out that you find out who your true friends are, right? We have this saying that you've probably heard that a friend in need is a friend indeed. And here David is at this time of great need and he finds out who his friends are, right? Here come these loyal men, these faithful men. Their character is also revealed at this time. And how wonderful it is to have loyal friends at a time when you're down. You know, like I said at the beginning, one of the great phenomena of life is what happens when a person hits rock bottom. What happens within that person and what happens around that person. It's often in times of great crisis that people's characters are revealed. And we've certainly seen that in this story. We've seen Ziba and Shimei and Ahithophel, their characters revealed, and it's been a, a watershed moment in all these relationships. But it's also been one with David's friends. But what about David? This situation also revealed what was going on in David's heart as well. It revealed him to be more than ever now a man after God's own heart. Even after all his failures and mistakes, after blowing it so many times, he's revealed here to be a man after God's own heart. This situation brings it out. You know, some people have said that David, after his sin with Bathsheba, he never again shone greatly for the Lord. I disagree with that. It was during this time, interestingly, this time when he's on the run from his son Absalom, it was during this time that David wrote six Psalms and probably actually seven, right? Psalms 3, 41, 55, 61, 62, 63, probably even Psalm 23, the famous psalm, was written during this period. That would make a total of seven psalms David wrote at this period. And you know what? From my count, that's the most psalms that David ever wrote during any one single period of his life. You see, we see David's heart revealed in the way that he dealt with the criticism that he received from Shimei. How he received adversity with humility, with a heart that said, the Lord is allowing this because he has something that he wants to do in my life through this. But more than any other way, you know how we see David's heart revealed in this? That he was a man after God's own heart? We see it in this, that he didn't cling to the throne. He was willing to let go of the throne. And do you know what? That's what it means to be a Christian. 
That's what it means to be a person after God's own heart. It means that you're willing to let go of the throne. It means to yield control of your life over to God and say, God, the throne of my life, it's not mine. It's not mine to have, not to take, not to protect, not to keep. The throne of my life, it belongs to you. And if you will cling to the throne of your life, you know what? You're going to end up like Saul did. You will bankrupt your life and you will lose your soul. But it is in letting go of the throne of your life, giving it to God, that you begin to truly live. And you know what? The reason you can give up your throne to him is because he gave up his throne for you. You know that? The reason you can give the throne of your life over to him is because he gave up his throne for you. Jesus gave up the throne of heaven for you. He traded the throne for the cross. That is how much he loves you. And when you really see that, when you really understand the message of the gospel, that Jesus gave up his throne for you, when you understand that that is how much God loves you, then you cannot help but give up the throne of your life for him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this. He says, the love of Christ constrains us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and he died so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for, his, for their sake died and was raised again. What does it mean to live for him and not for yourself? You know, let me tell you, that is what the Christian life is all about. That question and living with that question every day. What does it mean to live for him and not for myself? That is when the Christian life gets exciting. Exploring and living out the implications of that question. What does it mean to live for him and not for myself? And you get to consider that. You get to walk that every day and discover new ways of doing that each and every day. What does it mean to live for him in the area of my finances? What does it mean to live for him as a parent with my kids? What does it mean to live for him as a student? What does it mean to live for him here and there and everywhere? It's a compelling thought, isn't it? It's intriguing and it's exciting. And that is what the Christian life is all about. It's about living for him who for our sakes died and was raised. Let's get out there and do it, eh? Stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for the message of the gospel. Lord, that message that you love us that much, that you gave up your throne for us. Lord, may we be those who follow the example of David and let go of our, the throne of our lives for you. Lord, and put everything in your hands because you have proven, Lord, on the cross once and for all that you do love us so much. So why wouldn't we let you have the throne of our lives? Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you've saved us, that you've redeemed us, and that you're making us new day by day. We thank you for the glorious future that we have with you. Lord, I pray for anybody here who hasn't yet given their life over to you. Maybe they haven't hit rock bottom. Maybe they haven't come to the point of considering eternity. Lord, I pray for them today that you would speak to their heart, that you would bring that conviction that says it's time. It's time for you to quit the excuses and follow Jesus Christ with your whole heart and let go of the throne and give it to him. Lord, would you do that today in all of our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen.